Bad diversity is where you have two people who grow up in countries that drive on opposite sides of the road, and you decide that everybody's entitled to drive on the side of the road that they grew up of and feel comfortable with, and all you get is auto accidents. So we are here with intellectual dark web impresario Eric Weinstein. We're going to get started talking to him in just a minute, one of the most fascinating guys around. But first, I want to talk to you about your internet security. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase, simply accessing your email, it could be putting your private information at risk because you are being tracked online by social media sites and marketing companies and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from that information, which is why I've taken back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. So ExpressVPN, they have easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. And ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing and encrypts your data, hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than 7 bucks a month. You owe it to yourself. It's rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so try it, see if you like it. You will. If you ever use public Wi-Fi, you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is indeed the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history to internet providers or data resellers, ExpressVPN can help you. Protect that online activity today. Find out how you can get three months for free at expressvpn.com slash Ben. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Ben for three months free with one year package. Expressvpn.com slash Ben to check it out and learn more. Okay, Eric Weinstein, thank you so much for joining me here on the Sunday special. For those who don't know, Eric Weinstein is a Harvard trained PhD in mathematics who somehow found himself as the creator of the intellectual dark web, which you've read about in the pages of the New York Times amidst photos of people like Eric standing in the trees with Sam Harris and Joe Rogan standing among the cacti. Um, so, Eric, first of all, welcome. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. And second of all, how did you, who started off and still work in the world of physics and mathematics, end up creating at least the name for the intellectual dark web? You did it. I know we were on stage together when it happened. So what, what's the backstory here? Well, it's a, I think it's actually sort of an interesting one. I have been uh, tracking various political and social issues uh, since the 1980s and have uh, inserted myself or fought uh, through a, a number of topics, including uh, high-skilled immigration, mortgage-backed securities, uh, and various issues having to do with um, my concerns over the loss of objectivity in uh, the major press organs. So in some ways, this is uh, not my first uh, rodeo. There have been a, a few before. And um, what's been really interesting for me is that this is the first one where I've had great company. So a lot of these uh, previous iterations have been uh, really one or two people, like Nassim Taleb was a uh, co-fighter uh, in the mortgage-backed security question. And a guy named Norm Matloff was one of the few people who was uh, really a critic of high-skilled immigration from an intelligent position. So what's really interesting about this is that this is the first time that there's a large number of interesting voices with a few new technologies and, and wrinkles to explore. And I think um, the best thing I could think to do uh, with so many independent voices was to try to use language to identify what was already occurring and have the language sort of help people see what was already happening. And that would allow it uh, us to direct this a little bit uh, for more more powerful aims. Well, what do you think has changed? I mean, what, what sort of brought all of this together? Because obviously it's a pretty politically disparate group. You're on the political left. 
Uh, you voted Democrat, I believe, virtually all the time now. I don't think I've ever voted. Oh, you've never? Uh, okay, so, you, so you're, you're on the left. And, you know, obviously your brother, Brett, who's a member of the IDW in good standing, uh, he also is on the left. People like Sam Harris are on the left. And then I may be the only overt conservative in the group, actually. Like, it's been, it's been actually perceived as this wild right-wing group. And as far as I know, I'm the only registered Republican in the group. So far as I know. And I, I think that has to do with the fact that something very peculiar happened on the left. And so in many ways, this is a response from an older left to what is viewed as almost certainly a um, very brief, very intense, and very crazy uh, bout of uh, bad judgment, I would say, from the American left. It's not that these strains haven't been present before. But what's really new to me is the idea that uh, this new sort of woke network um, which practices something which I've, I've called left Carthyism, uh, has invaded the major organs uh, of civil society. And the most important examples of this, I would say, first and foremost, is not the universities, but the major media companies that are, form our sense-making network, so news bureaus, let's say. Uh, the next thing that's infected, uh, in my opinion, is the tech companies that are public-facing which uh, are under constant pressure to show that they are sufficiently um, in line with what are called progressive values, but I think most of us with a, a longer timeline would, would say are very regressive values. And the intelligence community, which uh, you know, scares me no end, uh, almost certainly has a relationship with these tech companies, given that we deposit all our secrets into our Gmail accounts and our browsing histories, as you were just talking about uh, in your latest plug, um, you know, all of these things uh, are come together in what I call TIM, technology, intelligence, and media. The universities are, a certain, are certainly a, a serious problem. But I think the most important problem is that we can't trust our sense-making organs because, uh, you know, as we just I tweeted out today, um, the New Yorker, uh, you know, ran a tweet saying, conservative orators like Milo Yiannopoulos, Ben Shapiro, and Richard Spencer, and then dot, dot, dot. And I thought, wow, I mean, you, you just put Ben Shapiro next to Richard Spencer as if none of us are going to notice what you just did. <laughs> um, this has gotten really dirty, really negative, and conservatives have complained about excesses on the left uh, for a long time, and I think that's been fair. But I also think that there have been a lot of excesses on the right. What we're seeing is something really, really new. The, the, the new left is much more dangerous. And I think those of us on the, on the old left um, who weren't happy with some of these strains before take it upon ourselves to say, how do we clean this up? This is, in some sense, our problem. And you know that, that was not fair to do to you. So if the New Yorker is not going to apologize to you, uh, I prefer not to apologize. I'm just going to fight back because it's just not right. Well, you didn't do it, so you shouldn't apologize, obviously. So, But let, let's talk about how you fix these particular institutions and what is the exact problem with the institutions. Sure. So there have been a couple of solutions proposed with regard to the media from the right. One is the sort of restoration of the idea that there is an objective journalism to be found and that everybody should go back to this aspirational idea that supposedly existed before where there were the facts checkers and the, and the people who reported the facts, and then there were the opinion makers, and there were two separate groups of people. And then there are folks like me who tend toward a sort of legal realist perspective when it comes to the media, which is all these folks have their political point of view. We know they'll have their political point of view. Sure. Why don't they just be honest about their political point of view? I run a right-wing website. The Huffington Post is a left-wing website. I have less of a problem with CNN, with uh, MSNBC than I do with CNN for exactly this reason, because MSNBC is clear about its biases. 
How do you think this gets solved? Is it people being upfront about their own biases or attempting to remove their own biases in doing the reporting? Is that even possible? I think both of those uh, both of those techniques can work just fine. So, you know, Gonzo was the idea that if we just open what it is that we're thinking and doing, we insert ourselves into the story, that that allows the consumer to unspin whatever it is that, that, that they're doing. Or you can have warring you know, a left-wing media and a right-wing media. That's not what the problem is at the moment. I think that the problem is that a lot of this stuff is just actually disingenuous. Right? People know that you are not a Nazi, and they know that Richard Spencer is very close to being one, you know, that he, he's, he's really flirting with stuff that's absolutely dangerous and crazy. And they don't care. The key, the key point is, um, as somebody said to me recently, and progress is messy. And the idea is that if certain lives have to get ruined on the way towards some imagined uh, egalitarian society, then that's just too damn bad. That's terrifying. Well, literally the language of Stalinism. I mean, that is breaking the eggs to make the omelet. That, that, is, that is legitimately the, the quotes being used by people who are Stalinists. Yes, and you know, sometimes certain bad things have to happen, but we're talking about the actual destruction of interesting and important lives. Um, because the people who see this collectively view this as a hive. If a few bees in a hive die, it's not like the hive actually collapses. So because of the collectivist framework, they actually don't see damages to individual lives as particularly worthy of empathy. So what is going on, I think, is very important. You know, you bring up two models. You can either try for objectivity or you can be honest about your biases. Both of those are much more similar to each other then this other thing is, which is we know what the right answer is for society, and it doesn't really matter how we get to get there. So what we're going to do is we're going to propose ideas that are, uh, and in an analogy, they're almost like suicide ideas. They're ideas that are simply meant to be highly destructive. So that you, you know, you, if I say to you, well, you know, clearly a white man uh, can't understand anything, then what I've just done is I've taken two of your attributes and I've shut you up or forced you to, to deal with this completely irrelevant argument uh, you know, for the next 90 minutes. So this style of argumentation is, is something that actually has to be excluded. If you want a diversity of opinion, of opinions that actually matter, it's very important not to seat people who think in these terms at the table. And it, you know, this is what we talked about, on a, I think, maybe on the Rubin Report, or maybe it was just before you got there. There's good diversity and there's bad diversity. And so what I analogized is, Good diversity is when you have people who are uh, of good character trying to puzzle through something, uh, fighting very hard for their perspective. Bad diversity is where you have two people who grow up in countries that drop uh, that drive on opposite sides of the road, and you decide that everybody's entitled to drive on the side of the road that they grew up of and feel comfortable with, and all you get is auto accidents. And so it's very important to drive bad diversity out of the system, because otherwise you never get to experience the benefits of the highly multicultural and interesting diverse society that we managed to build for ourselves. So you've spent an awful lot of time in the tech community also. So you mentioned three specific areas. You mentioned media and technology and the intelligence community. I want to go through each one of those. So tech, you've spent a lot of time in because you work closely with Peter Thiel, who obviously is deeply involved in everything Silicon Valley has to offer. I've been complaining for a long time about the inherent biases of places like Facebook and YouTube, and it's pretty obvious to folks, including Dave, uh, Dave Rubin, that YouTube has a biased algorithm that demonetizes particular points of view. Uh, Facebook has on occasion really punished people on the right for, I believe, political reasons. Is there anything can be done about this in, in any real sense, or are we just at the whims of what are essentially monopolies? I mean, Facebook has the closest thing to a monopoly that I've seen in modern American life, and I'm, I'm not an antitrust guy by, by nature, but the fact is there's no competing service that even comes close to the sort of control that Facebook has 
over social media. Uh, and people have spent millions of dollars promoting material on Facebook to have Facebook gobble that up and then turn back an algorithm that is dishonest and disingenuous in many cases. Is that something that, that can be dealt with or is the only answer regulation or the building of alternative methods of distribution? Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting and difficult problem. I believe that there's actually a set of new problems that came about from the fact that this technology, giving everybody the power of, a, of their own newspaper, let's say, you know, to publish their own newspaper, is a new feature of the world. It's not clear to me that free speech um, can just go on as before uh, because of how big of a shift uh, this particular new idea is. You know, if I get a hold of um, you know, some very dangerous secrets, uh, bef- before anybody knows it, I can have published it on, on Instagram or Facebook or who knows what. Um, so I think that there are actually a new suite of problems that are probably going to have to change jurisprudence um, if we're going to keep the spirit of the Constitution alive. And I don't know what that's going to be, but I think that that's going to be a change. When these companies found that they had these problems, that people didn't want to be on the networks because everything was so unpleasant when uh, everyone was getting all information all the time, uh, I think that they tried to um, get uh, community policing. Whoever the people were complaining the loudest, uh, if you were complaining loudly, you might become a, a truth and safety uh, commission member. And so effectively, all of the most noisy, most upsettable uh, folks ended up uh, in, in these positions of some power and influence. And a lot of the suggestions that they've made have been lousy to people who have a very strongly rational perspective. Um, Nobody's perfectly rational, but the idea being that lots of things that we talk about that should be discussable by adults in an an adult fashion, you know, if, if, let's say, my brother mentions genotype and phenotype as a biologist, uh, and someone has a freakout session because they, they think that that's evidence of his bigotry, that person who's freaking out needs to be uh, downregulated and not listened to. Um, so it's very important that we not overvalue the loudest and shrillest voices. Uh, but the tech companies, I don't think, figured out how to do that. Furthermore, I think that what we don't, what I don't understand, is the extent to which what I call the gated institutional narrative or gin um, depended upon there being very few outlets to check or challenge uh, what the major thematic uh, narratives would be. And I think that there's a real difficulty with people who came up in the previous world before the internet and before social media trying to figure out how to exert enough party-level discipline in order to have these sort of long narratives that we remember from the era of Walter Cronkite and Eric Severide. And that's, that's gone away. It's never coming back unless somebody does something drastic. So I think it's very important to understand there were some problems and we haven't had good solutions. But what, I, what is terrifying me is that I don't know what part of this might be directed um, and what part of this is emergent. I don't know if there, are, there have always been people behind the scenes looking to manipulate the media. And what I don't know is if those hands are currently using the power of these algorithms in a way that has nothing to do with providing a more engaging and pleasant product. So it's necessary, and almost certainly, we need control over the algorithms. I need to be able to experiment and flick a switch and say, I want to see things in the order that they were published. I want to see things without you prioritizing this or upregulating and downregulating that. Give me the toggle switches and the control 
so that fundamentally I can catch you if I see that you are politically manipulating. So for example, on Twitter, I never know which of these accounts are authentic. If I tweet something and 20 accounts have very similar statements like, ha, 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 what an idiot. Okay, that's going to make me feel a particular way. What if those accounts are all owned by one person and then they're programmed to do that? We don't know which percentage of this uh, is authentic. So in a second, I'm going to ask you about the intelligence community. First, let's talk about your impending doom. Okay, everyone is going to die. 71% of people say they need life insurance, but only 59% of people have coverage, which means at least 12% of people are procrastinating and 29% of people are stupid because all of you need life insurance. Sure, normally procrastinating is a bad thing, but if you've been avoiding getting life insurance, procrastinating may have worked in your favor this once because while you were putting it off, Policy Genius was making it easy. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. You can compare quotes in just five minutes. And when it's that easy, putting it off becomes a lot harder. Plus, if you put it off too long, you die, and then it's too late. You can compare quotes while sitting on the couch watching TV. You can compare quotes while you're listening to this podcast. Go try it. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance. They've placed over $20 billion in coverage. And they don't just do life insurance. They also do disability insurance and renter's insurance and health insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So if you need life insurance, but you've been busy because you're putting it off or whatever, and you don't have the time, check out Policy Genius. It's the easy way to compare top insurers, find the best value for you. No sales pressure, zero hassle. It's free. PolicyGenius.com. When it's this easy to compare life insurance, there's no reason to put it off. PolicyGenius.com. Okay, so now let's talk about the third leg of the stool that, that you're having problems with here, and that is the intelligence community. So obviously, President Trump has been incredibly critical of the intelligence community. I think some of that is disingenuous. I think that the president doesn't like when the intelligence community comes up with answers he doesn't like. He doesn't have sort of a natural civil libertarian objection to the intelligence community. What is, what is your chief objection to the intelligence community? And how do we draw the balance between an intelligence community that does what it needs to do to protect us from terrorist attack and an intelligence community that is gathering up every bit of data that it can possibly for use against undesirable people or for targeting of particular viewpoints? So I think it has to do with how much history you're aware of. And in particular, um, one of the most disturbing things about our intelligence community is what we found out in the mid-70s from the Church and Pike Commissions when we really thoroughly investigated what was going on, not only in the FBI, but in particular in the division known as COINTELPRO. Um, and one of the things that I point people to uh, so that they understand just how bad the situation can get is the situation in which Gene Seberg, one of Hollywood's leading actresses, was destroyed by information taken from the, uh, misinformation rather, taken from the uh, FBI and placed in the Los Angeles Times by a woman named Joyce Haber, later repeated by Newsweek, suggesting that she had cuckolded her white husband with a Black Panther's child. She then, uh, under stress, miscarried, uh, had an open casket um, press conference displaying a, a dead white fetus, uh, and went crazy, eventually killing herself after it, attempting to do so on every anniversary of her child's death. This is the way in which the U.S. has previously played. This is not a conjecture. It's not speculation. This is proven fact. Just as we experimented with the idea of getting uh, La Cosa Nostra to kill Dick Gregory, Martin Luther King's right-hand man, uh, the letter from Sullivan trying to get uh, Martin Luther King to kill himself by his own hand, and we actually assassinated Fred Hampton in his bed in Chicago. So if you have a left-of-center perspective, you're very well aware that the intelligence community has previously been out of control. Now, I have no reason to think that it is out of control at the same level now, I don't know if there's an analog of Operation Mockingbird. But the idea 
that we should simply trust our intelligence community when we have not publicly vigorously investigated it for many years in a new era in which it's possible to hoover up all sorts of data uh, from our simply our daily um, behavior, given that all of us carry tracking devices, microphones, and video cameras at all time. This is patently insane, and, and, and we need a new level of oversight so that we can trust our intelligence community with our secrets. What concerns me is, is that I don't know who to trust at base. I don't know if we can trust the intelligence community. Maybe we can. Maybe they're doing an absolutely brilliant job without infringing on our rights, or maybe they're out of control. What is it that we are going to do in the modern era with all of this extra sensor data um, to make sure that we are not being tracked completely? How did you, so I started off by asking you, you know, you start off as a, as a guy doing mathematics at Harvard. How did you go from there to politics? How did you get into this world? Like, what's your personal story? First of all, how'd you get into math? Tell me kind of how you got here. Well, um, so you have a, a, a path to God through the synagogue. My family, while Jewish, was always uh, committedly atheist. And I figured if, if, uh, if I was ever going to figure out what the universe was, um, probably reading differential geometry rather than Hebrew was the way to find God in his original language. So I, I thought I would try to figure out how physics unifies. And in the process of that, uh, I responded to a call from the scientific community that said that we were going to have a massive shortage of scientists and engineers back in the 1980s, and that the job prospects were going to be limitless and uh, very well remunerated. What happened, in fact, is is that we had a disaster. And in trying to figure out why uh, the golden era uh, immediately disappeared in the early 1990s, uh, I discovered that there had been a conspiracy in the National Academy of Sciences, the National Science Foundation, the Policy Research and Analysis Division, and the Government University Industry Research Roundtable, all inside of the National Academy uh, Complex and the National Science Bureau, uh, Board. What shocked me was is that they were, in fact, trying to figure out how to avoid letting the free market determine the salaries of scientists and engineers and letting them rise to bring the needed Americans into the STEM sector. And so when I was the person who discovered a secret study from 1986 uh, studying how to, in fact, lower the wages of Americans by flooding the market with foreign scientists and engineers, I couldn't believe it. I had always thought that immigration was basically a pure positive. Uh, I was excited, as all of us are, uh, that we live in such a vibrant uh, nation of immigrants and then to find out the, that the very people who were supposed to be guarding the national science endeavor uh, were the ones who were stabbing it in the back. It was like finding uh, an Agatha Christie whodunit where uh, it was murder on the Orient Express and everyone had a hand in pushing the knife in. So that broke trust to such a remarkable extent um, that I ended up testifying in front of or uh, presenting in front of the National Academy of Sciences four separate times. And I watched as the news media refused to cover the story. Um, Effectively, everybody buried it. And then I realized, my gosh, we're not living in the free society that I thought. Because the story went counter-narrative, because in my sector of the world, all of us were pro-immigrant, and this indicated that immigrants um, weren't the problem, but that the visas were being used to flood the market. Because this was a story of uh, betrayal, Uh, by the government against the workers because the claim was that Americans couldn't do science and engineering when I think we are absolutely one of the very best systems for educating people in science and engineering. The whole thing was topsy-turvy. And I think that that um, institutional betrayal 
uh, was the thing that hooked me on the idea that I didn't know how deep the rabbit hole went. So when it comes to that issue, so let's talk about high-skilled immigration for a second, sure. because we may have a difference of opinion on this. I've always been an advocate for high-skilled immigration. You obviously oppose high-skilled immigration, uh, at least in, in certain sectors. What is the, the downside of high-skilled immigration? Is it just that people are being promised jobs that aren't materializing in the United States, or is there a, a net detriment to the United States with people bringing in high-skilled immigrants to to fill jobs in in sectors where they want to lower the price? Like, I mean, I, first of all, I don't even know where to begin. Um, certain amount of high-skilled immigration has always been present, and we do be- benefit from getting the absolute top talent in the world, but that's not really what we're looking at. What we're looking at is a bunch of systems that depress the market so that we lose uh, top talent that, don't, that uh, doesn't choose to go into science and engineering but goes into investment banking or management consulting or some other sector uh, because these salaries are so low, it means that a lot of uh, our technical edge, um, which we use to power our own economy and uh, our own defense structure, finds its way uh, to the four or five countries in Asia, which supply us with most of the cryptic labor that we call graduate study, but is in fact uh, a labor market to staff the labs. Um, you can even, most people have never even done the thought experiment, uh, imagine that, uh, let's say, Leibniz lives in Germany, uh, Newton and Clark live in the UK, and um, Newton is better than Leibniz, but you open one border and not the other, and Germany pays better. Well, then Newton displaces Leibniz, Clark takes the the space that would have been left for Newton, and you get Clark in the UK and Newton in Germany, rather than Newton in the UK and Leibniz in Germany. So you get an inferior outcome. So I think people haven't really thought through this idea. They have an intuitive sense of, wow, we're we're getting an incredible bargain. We're getting the best minds in the world. What could possibly be going wrong? The last thing I'm going to say is that I think we do a better job uh, with our crazy heterogeneous educational system uh, raising irreverent scientists. And I think the biggest discoveries, the ones that really move the needle, are done by people who are incredibly irreverent and very disagreeable. And that's what our system excels at. If you get a Richard Feynman, he's dangerous. You can't really, he's like an outside cat. You can't bring him inside. But the fact is what we're getting is we're getting pliant labor, people who don't really rock the boat, who are extremely regular, uh, rather than people who are confident, who know that their careers are assured, and who can flip the middle finger to anybody who gets in their way while they're exploring ideas. So it sounds a lot like, I mean, if you take all the elements that we've been talking about so far, it sounds a lot like you understand why Trump came to the fore. Because we've now been talking about high-skilled immigration and its downsides. We've been talking about distrust of the media and distrust of the tech companies and distrust of the intelligence community. And President Trump embodies a lot of these particular elements. So what do you make of the the Trump phenomenon? Is it pure reaction to these things? Does he have a point on some of these elements? Or are we watching just essentially the country go mad on all on all sides. Well, what do, you, what do you make of the Trump phenomenon? Well, this comes full circle. I think that the problem was is that we didn't have something like the IDW before this. So the first person to break through and say, look, the institutions are out of control in a way that you could actually gain power was Trump. And so as a result, we associate this kind of high level of skepticism with Trump rather with, than with the people who might be doing it from a completely responsible and analytically sound perspective. So if I take three issues, you can take three issues where we have what I call the checksum theory of politics. If I can see that you're lying without doing any work, I lose trust very quickly. Those three issues are as follows. First question, do you believe that trade uh, 
is a rising tide that raises all boats. It clearly is not. That doesn't mean it doesn't provide a net benefit, but it's certainly not the case that nobody gets hurt and everybody's made better off. The representations on trade made by economists were patently false. And as Paul Krugman has called, it's basically, has said, it's basically a scam by the elites. Second one uh, would be immigration. If you believe that fundamentally immigrants are simply the best of us, they work harder, they're smarter, uh, they have all these positive traits and they cause no problem and no disruption, um, that is patently absurd. It doesn't mean that immigration isn't good, but the representation being made is completely childlike. The last one, if you claim that there is absolutely no connection between terror and Islam, when you have mass murders and people shouting Allahu Akbar at the end, um, people know that you're lying. And this is part of the problem. It, it may be very noble to protect our Muslim community um, by pointing out that the problem isn't Muslims, and I, I will say the problem is not Muslims, but the problem is connected to Islam in a, in a way that it's not connected to any other group at the moment. The only two other groups that, are, that have practiced suicide bombing in the modern era have been uh, the Tamils in Sri Lanka, I think, and the um, Kurds uh, in Turkey, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. So in the, these situations, the population can clearly see that the uh, news media, the political parties, are not representing things accurately. And I think that made people crazy. They want to believe that at least the fictions that they're being fed are adult level and that they suggest that whatever is being done behind the scenes, even if people can't be straight with the population fully, is still in the best interests of the country. And so I think Trump was willing to say things in his crass and very direct and brutal fashion that indicated that we felt that we were being betrayed by our institutions. Well, do, do we have a, a problem, though, in you, you make a claim that, that all these claims about trade and immigration and, uh, and terrorism, that they're oversimplified. And I agree with all of that, obviously. Trade, I believe, is a net benefit, as you say. But clearly, there are people who are going to go out of business because of free trade. I mean, there are certainly towns in the Midwest that have gone completely out of business. They've gone defunct because of free trade. And that is one of the costs of free trade that has always existed. And when it comes to immigration, obviously, Certain immigration is good, and not all immigrants are created equal. They're not, they're not all the same in terms of the qualities that they bring to the table uh, or in terms of the culture that they're bringing across our borders. All of that is true. And then on the flip, but when you get to the flip side, then there's a, mis, a similarly simplistic misrepresentation that's, that's being promulgated. So when it comes to trade, for example, you have people like President Trump saying that trade is not only a, it's not just that it's, it's a net benefit that has downsides, it is a net loss, that, that trade itself Trade wars are easy to win and good. Uh, or, or when he says that immigration itself is, is of no benefit, essentially, that immigration, he wants to curb legal immigration, not just illegal immigration. And he doesn't really want to vet anybody. He just doesn't want to have a lot of immigrants come into the country. He's pretty anti-immigration, generally speaking. Uh, or when he says, with regard to uh, the, the other issues that, that you're talking about, when he, say, when he says with regard to Islam, for example, well, the solution is let's just ban all Muslims from entering the country, as opposed to there are problems within Islam that have to be dealt with within Islam, and we have to vet people coming in with a certain level of strictness. He eventually comes around to that position, but that's not the original position that he's espousing. When you have two blunt instruments slapping each other, right. is there any sort of, of plausible solution-making that can occur? And I know it's a long question, which is why I'm going to read an ad first. So before you can think about that one, while we, while we get to this. So first, let's talk about your suit. So your suit is probably ugly. You probably got it off the rack. You probably look like a schlub. Let's be straight about this. The reality is you need a suit from Indochino. Indochino makes made-to-measure suits. Okay, They're made-to-measure, not off the rack. They're made for you. And every dude looks better in a great suit. Indochino is the world's largest 
made to measure menswear company. They've been featured in major publications, including GQ and Forbes and Fast Company. They make suits and shirts made to your exact measurements for a great fit. You can do it online. You can go to their website. You can send your measurements. They send you the suit made for it. You can pick your lapels. You can pick the, the kind of buttons you want. You can pick the material. They also have headquarters in various major cities around the country. They have one on Santa Monica Boulevard in LA. I went over there. It's really a lot of fun. Guys love the wide selection of high-quality fabrics, the options to personalize all the details. Here's how it works. You visit a showroom, you shop online at Indochino.com, you pick your fabric, choose the customization, submit those measurements, and then wait for the custom suit to arrive in just a few weeks. And this week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com when you enter Ben Guest at checkout because I have a guest. So that's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Shipping is free. Indochino.com, promo code Ben Guest for any premium suit for just $379 and free shipping. Incredible deal for a suit that's going to fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. So I'm certainly but, totally paranoid about my lapel. Okay, yeah. The, the, your, your lapels look very nice. I mean, but, but I think Indochino would make them look better. Let's be straight about this. So, let's, so with all of this said, do, uh, the suggestion before the ad was basically that both sides are now slapping each other with these, with these bricks, with these blunt instruments. Neither is representing the issue fully. And so you can't have an actual honest debate about these issues without people recognizing the upsides and downsides of these particular policies. Is there a way forward from that, or are we so ensconced in the battle that we're just basically stuck Well, this here? is what you and I are engaged in. This is what's so fascinating. This is what I got completely wrong. Okay, I thought that when we finally had Trump, that the Democratic Party, who knows what's wrong with all of these perspectives, would cry uncle and say, look, we have to be straight with people because we cannot have Donald Trump in office. So if they really think that this guy is the second coming of Hitler and that he's the greatest threat to world peace that we've ever seen, and he's destroying the country, why not admit that the economists know that it's not a Pareto improvement where everybody gets better off, that it's only Caldor Hicks and that you need to tax some winners to pay some losers or to do more in terms of relocating people in different sectors of the country when you do have an open trade situation? Why not instead... When, you, when it comes to immigration, be honest with people that fundamentally the big issue uh, is not the tiny efficiency gain, which economists call the Harburger Triangle, but the enormous thing below it called the Borjas Rectangle. And it's an attempt to use immigrants cynically to transfer wealth from American labor to American capital, right? At some level, um, why not be open about the fact that we actually have a pretty good situation with the Muslims in the U.S., that so we don't have a, a highly radicalized population, and that they are, in fact, helping us in our intelligence work because they speak languages like Pashto and, and Farsi that we don't speak, but that there is some sort of a problem. Why is it that when they had the opportunity to take the power away from Trump and say, look, okay, we oversimplified it, um, we need to be more honest with people so that we don't get this reaction. I thought that they would take that opportunity. The fact that they doubled down on this kind of crazy intersectional identity stuff is what's terrifying because it seems to indicate to us that there is no bottom. There's no way in which things get so bad that we start leveling with people. And I don't know what to do about that. I think that's part of why we're in this IDW thing because what we're doing in microcosm is we're saying, look, I also agree that trade can be a good thing. Maybe you want a little bit more trade than I do. Maybe you want a little bit more immigration than I do. I actually published a paper that suggested how to do open immigration uh, using the securitization of rights to have a true free market so that workers benefit alongside of capital. There is zero interest in corporate America in that because the interest is in taking something that belongs to labor and handing it to capital. So my feeling is, is that if you and I were to model what a debate like that looked like, it would look absolutely nothing like what's going on. And you know, this was interesting for me. When you just went on Bill Maher after you had been 
uh, in Dave Rubin's studio with me, what I saw was the, the level of distortion that happened when you went into a formatted program. Bill Maher is about the best thing on standard television there is, and there's no way it can compete with this long format uh, discussion where we actually get into things and we don't sit here and just beat our partisan drum. So even though I've been handed a mug that says leftist tears, <laughs> uh, the fact of the matter is, is that I would much rather have a full-on drag-em-out discussion about trade, immigration, and terror with an honest conservative than a somebody trying to win an election inside of the DNC. Which is why I think that you're more of a liberal than you are a leftist. And I, I don't mean liberal in the sense that, that Dave Rubin means liberal as, as in classical liberal. I mean that there are people who disagree with me on economics, but agree with me that we have to actually have honest conversations about this stuff rather than trying to shut this down. That's why when we actually looked at making these, these tumblers, the original suggestion was liberal tears. And I said, I don't want liberal tears. I want leftist tears. It's well, this not, is why I see you thing. as a conservative and, and not as a right wing. No, I appreciate it. So let's, let's talk about your proposal for sort of fixing capitalism. So I obviously am a very laissez-faire, free market-oriented guy. You have proposed something called anthropic capitalism. So what exactly does that term mean? And what does that mean in material terms in, in terms of policy? Um, well, the short answer is, is that we don't know and that we better come up with an answer quickly. What if capitalism was a pretty terrific solution for the 19th and 20th centuries, but that in the era of, let's say, machine learning and robots and uh, world labor markets, that if you actually just let the machine run, it doesn't deliver uh, enough stability uh, in the in fact, jobs may go away because, while well, opportunity may be plentiful, uh, stable, repetitive activity that's lucrative may be, in fact, quite scarce. Uh, it's not at all clear to me that if you let the wheels of capitalism run in the current era, um, that markets will clear in a way that we're happy with the way in which our resources are distributed. Many people may become very disenchanted. Uh, and these are souls that need purpose. They need uh, sustenance. Uh, and they, they need uh, activity to, with dignity that the market may have provided very well in the past. So we're not going to disagree with you about the past. What I'm worried about is the future. And I think this is one of these paradoxes where conservatives tend to be very right about the past and progressives, if they are right, tend to be right about the fact that things may need to be very different uh, on a going forward basis. Well, so, inter- it'll be interesting to see as far as, I mean, there, there are people on the right, including Charles Murray and, and Milton Friedman who've proposed some form of universal basic income as a solution to the rise of artificial intelligence and the fact that you are having a lower skilled population that is just not going to be able to compete in this market where machines take over all the truck driving, for example, and all of the repetitive labor has been taken over well, by But radiology by may be now low skilled compared to a machine. I mean, that, that's, that's true too, although I think that the diagnosis seems to be better, at least from what I can see, diagnosis seems to be better when it's a combination of machine learning and An expert human system. input. F- fair enough, but I'm just trying to say that what... It, what we define as low skilled is gradually inching upward. Can change upward. quite a bit. Right. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that the fact is, is that we all acknowledge that it has to be some kind of a hybridized system. But what I think is also true, and this is good news for you, um, is, is that those few people who can actually manage these incredibly con- uh, complicated enterprises to deliver really profound innovation and growth may need to be freed from burdensome regulation that's completely inappropriate to creating new sectors of the economy. At the same time, uh, if those uh, windfalls occur, we may need radical ways of redistributing some of that um, if, in fact, uh, jobs uh, are affected in some new way where instead of machines having traditionally chased us from uh, repetitive behavior of low value to uh, repetitive 
behavior of higher value, the new paradigm may be that all repetitive behavior uh, is not lucrative and that the reason that the huge windfalls occur is, is that those people... That people There'll be an actual win- IQ hierarchy. Well, it's not just IQ hierarchy. It may be that what's going on is that these are one-off special situations. And so if you, th- you know, there are always some guys that you know and it's not clear that they have a job. They just sort of meet people and they sign pieces of paper and they make tremendous amounts of money. What are they doing? They're opportunistically searching the landscape for things that are not repeatable, but that actually are very well compensated. Most people are not going to be in a position to do that. And I think it's very important to actually get hyper-capitalistic because we have to deregulate certain sectors in order to get the innovation. And it's also important to realize that we're going to have to do something sort of hyper-socialistic because of what you were saying. And you know, if the Milton Friedmans of the world Uh, have understood that one of the things that's most meaningful to me about these conversations is if we get hyper-specific about what these alterations are, then perhaps we can get the conservatives to stop worrying quite so much about the kind of envy-driven desire to tax where we want to punish success because it's not fair that certain people are doing so much better. And the conservatives can come back and say, you know what, we do have a nation of souls uh, and it's not good enough to just say, well, the market uh, meets out harsh justice, so suck it tough. Right? Well, th- this is why I think that the, the idea for, for a lot of conservatives, particularly religious conservatives, is that there always has to be a balance between liberty and virtue, that you have to have freedom in the markets, but that can't exist unless you actually have a social fabric that's fostered by if somebody at my synagogue needs a hand, then that person gets a hand. And that's always the way that it's, it's been in religious communities, particularly. One of the great tragedies, of, in my view, of government growing beyond its boundaries is that people have stopped giving as much. People have stopped relying on their local community or their family as much. You see this particularly with Social Security, where people have stopped relying on... The, the idea was you had a lot of kids because your kids were going to support you when you got old, and that your kids knew that going in. And now it's, I'm supporting your mother through Social Security because she paid 50 bucks in and now she's getting 2,000 bucks a month out. And so the idea of you saving until you're really old and making plans for that, savings rates have gone down. People have stopped worrying about it because the government's going to take care of it. And it creates all of these, not only inefficiencies, but perverse incentives that result in, in a lot of worse outcomes. But there, there's another element here that I think is, is worth discussing. And that is, let's say that one of the things that's happening technologically is we are coming closer and closer to sort of the Star Trek replicator, where we've got a machine that just makes anything. Right? Like it's, it's easier to buy cheap things now than it ever has been in human history. Most people can buy those things in the United States of America. The, the number of people who are in extreme poverty by any global standard in the United States is below 2%. The vast majority of people in the United States by global standards are upper class and above, middle to upper class and above by global standards, not American standards, by global standards. And so we're reaching the point where prosperity, at least in any sort of absolute sense historically, is has grown to magnificent proportions. I mean, the, the person who's middle class now is living better than the person who is unbelievably wealthy in 1880 who's still going outside to pay. By material standards. By material standards. But this is the real problem, is that UBI doesn't solve the biggest problem of all, I think, which is, you, you sort of mentioned it, but the, the need for human fulfillment is not going to be filled by a government check or by a redistribution of, of income. And people, so far we've filled that. For, for most of human history, we've filled that with work. But the idea was that we were going to, we don't have a lot to do today, but we have to go and we have to work because otherwise we're going to starve. And that's what fills our days. What fills our days is that we go and sure, I'm doing a repetitive task at the factory, but that's what earns me the money so I can come home and take care of my kids and, let's just and ex- make a better life for them. And let's expand that slightly to not only include um, work for, for money, but also kin work, particularly, which has been 
the province uh, more of women than of men, which has right. been a, a vital part of work which needs to be recognized often happens off market. But yeah, keep going. no, that's exactly right. right, so, right. One, one, and one, one of the things that's happening is in the materialist, almost Marxist perspective of whatever's in your bank account is your, is your measure of value. And that's why, you know, if you don't have enough in your bank account, then obviously the system has somehow screwed you. The, the reality is that we are concerned with these systemic problems and we should focus on these systemic problems. But the great majority of unhappiness, I think, that's occurring in, in modern American society, and I think in the West particularly, which is historically prosperous, is a poverty of values, a poverty of meaning, a poverty of purpose. And I'm not sure that that can be filled. People are trying to fill that with political action. Instead of, instead of trying to look at their own lives and say, what can I do to make myself better? And what, if I were on a desert island, what would I do to make myself a better person? Just me and my family, what would I do? Other than going and chopping down trees or, or grabbing a coconut. We're so focused on either how we rail against the system, which sometimes deserves railing against, but we spend all of our time worrying about how to rail against the system. And that, I think, makes us susceptible to politicians who lie to us about these very simplistic Well, I agree with that, Ben, but I also think that one of the things that we have to do a better job on is just as I have to defend, um, coming from a left-of-center perspective, the right of people who have contributed extraordinary levels uh, to all of us to retain extraordinary reward, I think it's hyper-important for the right to acknowledge that a lot of the reward that has occurred has come from non-productive activities through rent-seeking. So if some meeting takes place in an investment bank, um, which allows them to uh, uh, privatize gains uh, and socialize uh, whatever security is necessary to keep those banks afloat, uh, and I wasn't party to that, that's going to make me livid and furious when it reorders the social order. No, we fully agree on this. I mean, when it comes to, this is actually- this is why we have to model this. Well, the Tea Party and the Occupy were on the same side of this particular battle. Our problem with Occupy, I was a Tea Partier, our problem with Occupy was not their argument that the big banks were in bed with the government. It's why are you protesting at the big banks? Go protest at the government, right? The big banks are not elected. At least the people in the government are elected. You want to you want to shatter that paradigm, you're actually going to have to go after elected officials as opposed to yelling at bankers who don't give a crap as they drive away in their Mercedes. Yeah, I, I'm actually more upset about the people who um, both left and right uh, refused to talk about the problem of rent seeking. So I believe there was a speech that Hillary Clinton gave at some point, if I'm not mistaken, where she said, come on, we, we all created the, the great financial crisis. And I thought, no, we nope. really didn't all create the great this financial right. crisis. And whether that is the heads of investment banks or, or um, politicians or the rating agencies, whatever it is, we did not return costs in an appropriate fashion. And that is the problem why there is such a loss of trust. When we had the savings and loan scandal, when you have situations where people go to jail, when people do jail time for bad deeds, you have a public trust that people can see that the, the high and mighty can be laid low. What was astounding, and you know, this is one of the things where I learned to distrust the New York Times, uh, is I appeared in an article called They Tried to Outsmart Wall Street, which tried to make the case that it was not the investment bankers, but the quants who came from mathematics and physics who caused the crisis. When from my perspective, we were the guys who tried to sound the alarm and say, hey, the models are out of control and this is nuts and nobody listened to us. So it's very important to realize that the media gets into the act, the regulators, the ratings agencies, the politicians. There's this entire industry of people that ordinary Americans do not understand, cannot fathom, that is allowing rent-seeking to undermine the basis of wealth. And it's important that wealth 
be something we can understand. I always watch Jackie Chan. Um, when he does a, a reel of the stunts in his film that didn't go well, and he slides down you know, live electrical wire and breaks through glass, and I think, there's no way in the world I want to tax this guy at a high level and take his money, because I know exactly why he got paid, because I would never do anything <laughs> like that. I want to be able to point to fortunes and say, I know what this person created, and thank you. And it's very important that we restore confidence that rent-seeking is not the primary modality by which wealth is uh, created through transfer. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how people find fulfilling lives, because this is one of the other elements of the IDWs. We all start off talking about these sorts of political issues and how to solve systemic problems. And one of the things that's fun about it is that we discover that we have so much common ground on a lot of these issues. But there, some of the, some of the, more, the most interesting conversations have happened over even deeper issues. So you and I and Sam Harris were all on stage together in San Francisco, and we ended up in a two-hour-long conversation about everything from free will to morality and values. And the argument that I've been making is one of the things that's broken in the West is that there is not a common sense of values anymore, that that has basically been shattered, that even, even though Sam and I hold a lot of values in common, the place we get those values is, is very different. And I frankly don't understand how Sam gets to his values from his own perspective as basically a materialist neurobiologist. It doesn't, make, it doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me. So how do we find that set of common values, or should we just stop asking the question, basically, should I just be happy that Sam and I agree on this stuff? And then we, and then we sort of let it go at that. I'm happy to do that, but I'm not sure that... Uh, I think that the reason, in my perspective, that we argue about this stuff is because I think that Sam's perspective on values, while I agree with his values, are un, is unsustainable in the long run, that it's not sustainable beyond the people who really like Sam and follow Sam, whereas I think that at least trying to appeal to some source of, of objective morality that's beyond my own reason... Uh, is is replicable and has been replicable throughout human history. This is an interesting question. I mostly stayed out of it because I think that the audience probably wanted to see uh, the atheist and the guy. In right, the, some claws go at it, exactly. Right. Um, but I had a very different take, I think, than both of you. And, and I came at it from sort of a, an evolutionary biology perspective. From my perspective, the key issue is, is that Sam begins with some concept which he calls human flourishing, which I don't know is ever fully fleshed out. And from what I can tell, the great danger with humans is, is that we can wake up and look at theories of selection and say, oh my gosh, this is the game that brought us here. Uh, and even if evolution is the engine uh, that created us, we don't need to, to keep playing that game. So, for example, we don't need to have children because we have birth control. So even if we want to have sex, we can get in, involved and in, in, in break that linkage. And these are things that are, uh, have to do with the way in which the human body is constructed. We think about proximates and ultimates. Approximate is thirst, but the ultimate is dehydration. Approximate is hunger, uh, but the ultimate you know, is lack of, of nutrition. Yeah. Right. So what happens is, is that what happens if the mind uh, suddenly wakes up and decides that it wants to pursue proximate pleasure? And if you break the body into two kinds of, of uh, tissue, soma and germ, um, the germ is your lineage, what contributes to your having children, and that is the thing that is immortal. But the soma is disposable. And so we're all in danger that the soma that is our mind um, can wake up and say, hey, I just want to have fun and I want to have pleasure. I'm going to define human flourishing to be whatever it is that I particularly enjoy. Now, it's not true that every atheist is going to go crazy like of this, far not. from it. But the problem is, is that it doesn't necessarily scale. So I'm in the odd position of basically being an atheist 
who is very sympathetic to religion and who in fact attends uh, you know, services and, and has a temple uh, in large measure because I believe that the brain has a sort of Chomskyan pre-grammar of religion. And that is that what, what sustained us was a belief in something longer than our somatic lives. We all feel that usually in terms of our children, even atheists. But the key question is, let's imagine that you don't have any children. Are you going to make investments that are going to benefit future generations if you don't believe that there's anything that happens after you die and there's no purpose and there's no meaning? So the way in which it comes down for me is, is that the reason religions outcompete rationality, which is quite surprising if you, if you, if you think about it, um, is this issue that the religions keep Soma from waking up and redefining human flourishing to be somatic. And that is probably the thing that I think Sam has not uh, fully addressed. Now, Sam is unusual because he is the atheist who sees the value in religion clearly and says, I think we can accomplish all that religion does well from the perspective of, uh, of reason. So it's not that he, we have to convince him that, that um, religions do many things well. What we have to convince him of is, is that it may be the case that certain aspects of atheists seeing human flourishing as intergenerational lineage-level behavior, uh, maybe that doesn't scale, and it only scales when you actually believe that there's some meaning and purpose that's larger than yourself. So I t- obviously, I agree with a lot of that, and I think that this is the, the flaw in Sam's reasoning is not his questioning of faith per se, it's his faith in reason alone, uh, and the idea that by reason alone you can achieve whatever values Sam wants you to achieve. Uh, and, and that I find deeply problematic, especially because we had 200 years where people were basically trying this and it did not work out particularly well. Well, but it may be that, for example, uh, that religion served us better in the past, but that Sam is right about our future, even if we don't have an atheist scale plan. I mean, it could be that we could institute rituals that are actually devoid of a belief in the supernatural that take over the Chomsky and pre-grammar. I'm not saying that that's foreclosed. It's possible, but it's, it, was, it was a giant fail for... 200 years, right? And, I mean, and I, and we I had don't, a cult of reason in France. We had, a, we had essentially a communist ritual system. In, and I don't, I don't believe the argument that um, we should treat Russia, uh, Soviet Russia, as a religion, and therefore it's not an experiment with the failure of atheism. Mm-hmm. I think that these, there's great danger in religion. There's great danger in an absence Agreed. of religion. And what's really necessary is to move that conversation um, in which our values are embedded, even if we're atheistic, because we're benefiting from the fact that we come from a substrate that, w- that was a largely Judeo-Christian sy- system. Uh, and I agreed with you. And by the way, I really appreciated your willingness to forego any appeal to Torah or Bible in favor uh, of a re- really appeal to reason for religion. And I think that was really interesting. Well, I mean, there's, because otherwise we have no common frame of reference for the conversation. So I may find that stuff inspiring and meaningful. But Sam clearly doesn't. So if I'm, I'm quoting him from the Bible, who cares? I mean, he's not gonna he's not gonna resonate to that, and it's not gonna be an argument that's that's necessarily worth winning with his audience. Because how do I win by citing Leviticus? Like that's that's just not a it's not a winning argument. Well, particularly Deuteronomy really loses me. Um, the, the, <laughs> the thing that really gets that really gets me about some of the conversations that we're having is that you have a very large number of people um, in our network. I would say Brett Weinstein, you, me, uh, Jordan. Um, maybe Douglas Murray, who I think are quite sympathetic uh, to religion um, without making arguments from religion. I think everybody in the group, basically, if they were willing to admit it, would would 
if they're willing to admit, I think pretty much everybody who we're talking about is essentially a natural law theologian. The only question is whether you're cutting God out of the picture or not. Well, because I, I Sam is basically making a natural law argument. He's just he's he's saying this is the universe calls us to to you know essentially forward human flourishing, and then I just have a problem with his definitions. Well, I, but the, but the problem would be you know I, I don't want to have to ask you about this on camera. But if I said, you know, how sure are you about the truth of the revelation at Sinai? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not entirely sure that you could give me a basis for that, nor would I want to. No, have. I can't give you a rational basis for revelation at Sinai. Right. And so the, the best that I can do is sort of Maimonides' explanation, which is that something happened at Sinai, and I'm not sure quite what. And people got from that, this is what he says in Guide for the Perplexed. And what people got from that is there is a God, and there shouldn't be idolatry, which human reason can bring you to. Uh, and then that. Moses was a particularly inspired logical figure who was able to access higher modes of thinking and brings the Torah down from from Sinai through direct communication with God. That's but essentially I, Maimonides' argument. And I'm worried about even that. So in, in some sense, if I uh, am feeling sick and I go to the drugstore and I say, uh, don't you guys have a placebo you can give me that can cure my ailment? Uh, if I'm really in on the conceit that uh, I don't have to you know, fully believe something, it's not clear to what effect... Um, you know, that it may be that you really get the benefit from being certain that there was a revelation at Sinai. And so the question of self-deception uh, and, and its efficacy uh, in human flourishing is a, is a very interesting one. Now, this is, and I think this is a key question that's sort of broken out, is you have to believe in the reality of revelation or just the importance of revelation? And my belief is that you sort of have to believe that, at minimum, you have to believe in the importance. If you, if you believe in the reality, so much the better, because then you have it easier. But believing in the importance is the minimum of understanding the evolution of Western civilization. I think that's the ante that gets you in, and then you have a situation in which you probably need a superposition of belief and lack of belief in order to uh, have, have a decent life. That's probably always existed, but one of the things that's so odd about this is, is that it's hard to talk about without destroying the efficacy. And these sort of questions of self-contemplation when you're trying to solve this ought-from-is problem um, may have something to do with the limits of discourse. And I think that you know this is something that would be much more interesting to model than the usual dorm-level discussions about whether there's a God. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Well, all of this is is really fascinating. So let's, let's finish up because we're getting close to the end here. Let's talk for just a second about if you could make three changes to the country, what would those three changes be? Wow. Um, probably... That's the Barbara Walters, what's no, your no, favorite no. kind of tree question, but... That's all right. Um, <laughs> regular investigation of the intelligence community so that if they're, in fact, doing a fantastic job, we can all uh, rely on them because I think that they provide a vital service and I'm not against them. A, we need to pay uh, journalists a great deal more. I don't know where that money is going to come from. And then we need to fire them uh, at the drop of a hat when they really break trust by pursuing uh, ideology as part of their payment, psychic payment stream at the expense of truthful uh, and meaningful reporting. And I think that it's absolutely imperative that the scientific apparatus of the United States be restored um, through academic freedom so that we can have crazy, dangerous, uh, highly agentic people once again take back the labs and kick out uh, all of the safe and um, ideologically driven uh, alterations so that we can create the new sectors of the economy uh, to get growth back on track. And this is one of the things that I think Peter Thiel and I share deeply, which is 
people don't worry enough about what happens in the absence of growth. And the U.S. absolutely needs, and the world at large, to find non-fossil fuel-led, technological, broadly distributed, stable growth in order to avert uh, war. And maybe the fourth and most crazy suggestion, if you don't mind me sneaking it in, is once in a blue moon, I think we need to explode an above-ground nuclear weapon because I'm terrified that what's happened is is that we've all fallen under a spell of magical thinking, that it doesn't matter who we elect and it doesn't matter how bad things get, that somehow the world is bizarrely stable and safe. And it absolutely is not. And I think maybe we need to actually... um, activate the amygdala and remind uh, everybody with what is hanging in the balance and how st- unstable this is so we can get onto the bit bu- uh, to the business of uh, making a really beautiful planet um, for generations to come now, eric weinstein thanks so much for stopping by it's always great to see you it's always fun to talk with my friends and it's cool to have a friend in here eric thanks so much for stopping by thanks man The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special was produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producers, Mathis Glover and Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.